Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. we got a sponsor show today with a brand new sponsor. A brand new sponsor, Strong DM. Strong DM is in the world of authentication, but not just authentication to anything, because there's lots of solutions like that. This fits a really interesting niche, doesn't it, Ned? It really does. They are really focused on empowering people to access their infrastructure. So engineers, IT professionals, folks like us that need access to their Kubernetes cluster or their database or SSH access into a machine, that's what they're focused on and they want to make it convenient to grant that access and use that access on your desktop or laptop. But this is not just like a simple little proxy that like a bastion host jump box kind of a thing. It is so far beyond that. You, you <laughs> got to listen to this show. Uh, our guest is Justin McCarthy. He's the co-founder and CTO, the one who got all passionate and is like, this is a problem I have to solve. And, and, and you're going to hear it in his voice as he gets right down in the weeds with us. Please enjoy this conversation with our sponsor, Strong DM and Justin McCarthy. Justin, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Man, it's the first time you've been on the show. First time Strong DM's been a sponsor. We are delighted to have you. In a sentence, would you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Justin. I'm the co-founder and CTO uh, here at Strong DM. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, what I do is think all about uh, building a product that hopefully people uh, get to use and love every day. Then tell us about the product. What Give us the, that, the elevator pitch. Describe Strong DM as a company and what you guys are doing. Okay, sure thing. Um, so Strongly on the product is all about access, um, but really the audience uh, that's doing that access is always somehow a technical audience. So we are a, an access product for that technical audience getting access primarily to infrastructure. So this is your data engineers, your software engineers, your DevOps folks that need access to that cluster, that server, that database every day. Uh, that's exactly the audience and that's what we do and that's what our product has done for a whole bunch of years now. So they're applications, but also, also hardware like a Cisco switch? Uh, really, whatever. Um, if you go and you have a conversation with a member of your tech staff and you say, what kind of systems do you need access to get your job done? It's those systems. So if the answer is a Cisco switch, then then yes. OK, so this is not a solution to get people access to Office 365. This is yeah to get into the switch, to get into the cluster, to get into the infrastructure that runs applications. Yeah, and I'll say uh, if all you need to do your job on a day-to-day -day basis is maybe access to your web-based CRM, maybe access to your email address, your company is probably a strong DM customer, but you as an individual might not be a licensed user. <laughs> so what made you go out and found this company and build this product? Because that's, that's not a small thing to go out and do. So what was the main drive behind that? You know, there there are a lot of uh, sort of classic responses to a question like that. And for, for me, uh, it was definitely the classic scratching the itch. So I was that person um, throughout my career in startups that was often faced with the like pretty challenging ask of, hey, can I get access to that cluster? Can I get access to that server? Can I get production access? I need to fix a bug. I need to inspect something. Uh, I need to do a release. Um, and all that's true. You, you have those reasons. You have those needs. Um, but every time you say yes to one of those questions, you take on a little bit of risk. And every time you say no, you frustrate a person and a department and, you know, an initiative. Um, and so that being right at the nexus of that saying yes and saying no, um, that was it for me. That was, that was the reason uh, why I could see that a product like this needed to exist. So you mentioned risk. What do you th think of as the risk behind granting someone access 
You know, the security surface area and the sort of likely possible avenues for a data leak or an availability problem, we spend a lot of time as architects and as designers thinking about, um, you know, for example, the surface area of the application. But um, we spend much less time generally thinking about the surface area of essentially your staff, right? So the sum of all technical staff in your company um, actually creates this quite large surface um, where you know, consistent level of training, consistent level of practices all need to contribute to a really safe operation of any production system, any production data. Okay. So, um, so that's the element of risk. It's, you know, Ned, you seem like a trustworthy person. Uh, you know, I, I've seen you on the command, uh, command prompt. You're very diligent. Uh, uh, and yet, um, you know, it seems like if I don't give Ned access, maybe, maybe I will reduce my chances of, uh, you know, an unexpected error of some type. Which isn't to say, Justin, that we didn't have authentication for infrastructure management before. I mean, there's a lot of solutions. There's not a solution set that solves all of this. I guess that with that is that how you differentiate strong DM. Now I have one solution as opposed to the the twelve ways I was accessing infrastructure before. Yeah, I think um, uh, we've seen this a number of times as new generations of products come online. Um, you know, uh, there was always a way to get into the data center. It just used to be called, uh, well, at one point it was called a physical key, right? And then it was maybe a key card and then it was maybe biometric, right? So, um, so, uh, so there's there's always been an answer to how do we grant access how do we secure that access um what i'll say is that in in the era that we're in now um a couple things have changed that that they really changed the game and actually require um in our view a, a product that um specifically addresses the convenience of that access if you don't have a convenient consistent way to say yes and to say no uh, to can I have access to that, um, then you're going to get folks working around the system inevitably. Okay. You're going to get, whether you're going to want to call it shadow IT or, uh, you know, the, the, the server instance that we don't know about often, uh, you know, in the, in the other uh, adjacent cloud account, um, one way or another, you're going to get folks that, you know, need, they need to accomplish their task. Right. Um, so actually what, what we found is that by, uh, focusing on the convenience of that experience of requesting access, receiving access, and and using access to the to the infrastructure, um, uh, you end up just getting uh, a lot clearer vision of what you have, you know, your total surface area of uh, of access grants that are in place, and you get a lot clearer vision of how that access is 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 happening every day. Okay, so would you term it as an access broker? where you've got the the things that need to be accessed on one side, the people that need to access it on the other side. And then I'm assuming you hook into some sort of identity system or multiple identity systems to to give people a way to authenticate and verify that they are who, who they say they are. So for sure, you could use the word broker. Um, and in fact, in the technical implementation of the product, it is a proxy. Okay. Okay. Um, the other thing that's happening is just just as you pointed out, um, absolutely, we are coordinating with the upstream, what we think of as the upstream identity providers. So because you already have Active Directory that you're happy with, or you already have uh, Okta that you're happy with, you have uh, an existing SSO in place, um, that's, that's a, a great working source of identity. And so we're going to continue to use that. 
What's happening within the proxy, though, is those identities, which are really easy to understand when you're thinking in Active Directory terms or something like that, well, how those translate into a specific uh, credential or username on a Redis cluster and how that's different from uh, a legacy Sybase database and how that's different from a Kubernetes cluster. Um, because those downstream resources that you're trying to access, because they share so little in common in their technical implementation, um, uh, we serve as a bridge to make it feel like one thing. Okay, so in one gesture, you're granting access to Sybase, Redshift, Snowflake, and Kubernetes, um, which isn't really possible unless you have that unifying broker layer. Interesting, interesting. I, I see where you're going with this. Like, if I live in a pure Windows Active Directory world, it's great because all my machines are domain joined and they all trust that identity. So if I want mm -hmm. to give someone access, I can just do it through AD. I'm good to go. But then you point out something like, oh, but you also want to SSH to that Linux box. How do I wire those things together? Am I going to install like L L LDAP authentication on every Linux box in my organization? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, all, and all that's all been possible since the beginning of time. You could stitch all of this together. That's always been possible. Um, I think what's inevitable once you have a, a unified uh, way of adding things, uh, it, it feels inevitable that that you're going to, and then you get to see you know a unified list of exactly all those servers that I need access to every day, um, and I know that I am receiving access and that that access is being logged in a very uniform way. Um, even across a very diverse um, set of types of systems. So based on what you said, Justin, I think I know the answer to this one, but I want to ask it anyway. How does StrongDM relate to, to a CASB solution? Would it be complementary or competitive? Sure. So I would I would probably generally say complementary unless you are really underutilizing your CASB. So if you're just using it for one or two use cases, then surely you can find a way to run those one or two use cases through StrongDM as well. But ge generally complementary, a lot of CASBs seem to be focused substantially on full-fledged SaaS applications. Right. And so, again, many times those are web applications, web applications. We are absolutely a web proxy among other protocol types. But when you look inside the use cases that our customers are coming to us day in, day out, it's much closer to, you know, those use cases where you need direct access to some server or cluster or database. OK, OK, that makes a lot of sense. Now, one thing that occurs to me is because you're kind of sitting in the middle of all these interactions you're also keeping a log of all these interactions. And I got to imagine if someone wants to audit access and what's going on, you might be a good point for that. That was also, of course, a key part of the product. Once the architecture was clear that we, you know, we needed to understand these protocols essentially at the wire level in order to deliver that convenience of being able to, you know, connect and authenticate consistently. Once we were in that position on the network, once we were in that position in terms of understanding the protocol, then recording a log of what's happening became quite possible in fact also necessary to give you that confidence that you're you know you're saying yes with a sense of you know safety <laughs> um, and i'll say for the recording of the activities that's something that we actually dog food regularly internally so there will be for example i think of session recordings in ssh where we might show one member of the team how to do something from a recording that was made by another member of the team right mm. Even just traceability on, you know, when did that release precisely hit the wire, right? Being able to go back and, you know, correlate something in, in case you had a, a, some sort of a snag with your build system or something. Having that second layer of evidence that said, here's exactly when this step or this change took place. It's just really available at your fingertips uh, in our, the observability side of our product. 
Oh, yeah, we're going to have to get into the architecture more and talk about uh, the, you know, the proxy functionality because you just highlighted something there that wasn't actually obvious when you say, oh, strong DM sits in the middle and we can log. And I'm thinking my, my gut reaction was, right, logging authentication. So-and-so just authenticated to whatever the resource is done. That's the log entry. Oh, no, we're talking about logging the full activity stream. Who did what and when? So full accounting of the session that's going on is what you're talking about, Justin, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So Ethan SSH'd into server foo, then ran this get on the Redis cluster, mm -hmm. then ran this query over in Snowflake, and then used Windows Remote Desktop Protocol to jump into, uh, you know, and run SQL Server Management Studio on that server over there. So mm -hmm. all of those events, semantically enriched with all the time, all the to and from, uh, but then also for those session-oriented protocols like RDP, you're watching a pixel perfect playback of that session. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, of that... course. Yeah, it's 2022. <laughs> like, what, what else did you expect? Not that. I think <laughs> I had to be completely honest. Because when I think about that, being able to capture all of that, you're generally talking about something that's using TLS to connect between mm -hmm. the client and whatever that destination is. So somehow you're sitting in the middle and decrypting that traffic and, and logging it. Uh, without triggering any alarms on the endpoint that the person's connecting to. That that sounds like a complicated feat. How did you do that? We're not violating any laws of physics here. We we are triggering alarms. So you do have to have an approach for trusting the CAs that are involved, right? So you do have to have an approach for distributing these out to the workstations so that the workstations are going to accept the TLS certificates that are involved. But yeah, we are a man in the middle, just like um, you know many of the other sort of uh, men in the middle technologies that are or maybe focused on web traffic. We're just focused on infrastructure traffic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the connection is absolutely TLS, you know, from the point of origin, from your Tableau client into the StrongDM proxy and then out the other end. Okay, so considering how deeply you can touch the data stream going in between uh, the person managing and whatever's being managed, that sounds like that might help me with regulatory stuff like uh, PCI HIPAA SOX, you know, all depending on the use case. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say there's a, a substantial bias in our customer base uh, toward folks that for, by one uh, regime or another have compliance obligations. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the more important your data is to protect and the more obligated you are to display evidence of that, sort of the more valuable a product like ours becomes. And so, yeah, we have uh, really just pick any of the acronyms and we've got customers uh, that are helping to meet those acronym obligations um, uh, through our product. Is that something you're natively flagging in the logs or is it more there than taking the logs, exporting them to some other analysis tool to, to find those compliance violations? It's somewhat both. So I would say it's very common and actually like our first duty is to emit logs that are semantically enriched, that capture and explain instead of just explaining a byte stream. They say, this is Ned interacting with a, you know, interacting with a MongoDB running this type of query, right? So we're, we're turning something that would otherwise just be your IP, your IP address to this other IP address and how many bytes flowed through. Right. We're turning that into something that you can actually have a conversation about with an auditor, okay? A lot of the phrasing of conducting an audit though is in terms of a request and response. So it's, you know, show me what Ned did do on this day, <laughs> right? right? Um, it's less proactive in terms of catching those violations of some policy you might write. That said, that stuff typically is happening more in the security team outside of the context of a compliance audit, but just responding in real time to the fact that, you know, our proxy is emitting 
this event that said Ned is doing this. Okay, so if you know that for whatever reason Ned should have access to this machine but shouldn't be doing that, that's a case where many of our customers do react to that in real time and then through our APIs will pause or shut down that session. Ah, hmm. okay. So yeah, they have some other automation that is watching that and, and flags an event Correct. and goes, Hey, uh, shut down that session. Uh, k- kill Ned's Correct. connection. He should not be querying all the social security numbers of everyone at the company. That just seems wrong. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, there's no. You can go into a penalty box for a while. You can discuss it and, like, you know, you know, get your get your access reapproved. Um, but yeah, that's exactly the kind of scenario that that our customers um, rely on day to day. You've mentioned a bunch of different possible technologies to connect to Redis, Mongo, Kubernetes, Windows RDP. Is uh, is there something that StrongDM won't talk to, uh, something that I might need to authenticate to that it just isn't compatible with? We haven't found one yet. So really anything that's on a network that you can remotely access, we have a lot of primitives in our system for um, deeply discovering and understanding what wire protocol is in use. Okay. And so, um, so yeah, that's, and then we've just done that for so many uh, types of systems at this point um, that it's fairly second nature to, to add. Uh, so we're adding new protocols every month. Hmm. Whether or not it's baked in today, it's pretty easy to add new ones. If you got a customer that says, I got the weird one. Come on, help us out. Strong DM. You can't. Uh, we, lo- we, lo- we love weird ones because at this point, it's just a new challenge. And actually, there are very few that we encounter. So uh, so I would love to hear about a weird one. Oh, I'm just thinking about like <laughs> OT stuff, like SCADA networks. And, and yep. the fact that those were not designed with any kind of, you know, security or access control in mind, I, I guess you can talk to those. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, uh, we want to hear about all the weird ones. So any, anyone that's got an idea for, for a wire protocol that we may not have seen yet, please, uh, please let me know. Hmm. Well, we got to talk about the architecture now, Justin. So I was doing some reading on uh, getting ready for the show. There's a client on the one side, there's a proxy, there's, I, I don't know what all there is. Walk us through the main components of the strong DM architecture. Sure. So your first intuition about the architecture, um, because this is, I would say, a way that uh, there is an architecture that solves for some of this stuff for generalizing access that relies heavily on installing agents in the sort of target systems. So an agent in your Linux box, an agent on your the machine that's running your database. And so I just want to say that's not our architecture. Um, instead, from the point of view of the target systems, all of the traffic originates from the proxy. So if you were, you know, doing a, a who or you were looking at the connections into a MySQL database, what you would notice is the, the IP address that's listed is the IP address of whatever proxy is connecting to that resource. OK, so there's nothing installed on the MySQL box. There's nothing installed in the Kubernetes cluster or on the Linux or Windows host. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very yep. much for yes. that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's. <laughs> <laughs> and and I will say like that means that actually trying out the product is as simple as install you know running uh, you know a single instance of the proxy in, in your in your VPC or in your environment right. On the user side, because this is a people first, user oriented uh, product, um, it is important not just for the technical ingress. Um, but also just for the user experience, it is important that we have a full-fledged graphical client. Hmm. Okay. As opposed so, to like a web browser and jump. As opposed to a web browser. browser. Yep. Yeah. And through, um, by, by acknowledging the reality that, you know, very few of us are um, tweaking our Cassandra cluster configuration from our phone. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. so like as much as I love to design mobile first, um, a lot of these use cases are just full desktop use cases. Okay. So because we're, we've just embraced that reality, 
Um, we get all the things that come along with being a full desktop client. So we get to push notifications to the desktop, right, in the native desktop way. We get to rely on OS and workstation locking. We get to rely on OS and workstation um, secret storage. Okay. So those are a lot of really cool things that we get by just embracing the reality of being a client. Okay. It also provides the, the ingress that we need um, so that the Tableau client, as far as it's concerned, it's just talking to a database apparently on the loopback interface. So it's apparently just running on localhost. So the client, I fire that up and it talks to some kind of centralized strong DM brain. Yeah, exactly. So there is a control plane that coordinates the network of proxies. Mm. Okay. And it coordinates all of the clients that are running out there. Um, and that control plane is super important. For example, the distribution and, and maintenance of trust, right? Mm. So if you want to run your session through uh, the, the mesh of proxies, um, uh, who you are, the authenticated session that you're beginning all of the key material that's involved in that needs to be distributed so that by the time you dial and hit the proxy, it knows what certificates you're gonna be dialing with. And it knows not just in general, but in the specific, like this is exactly Ethan now from this workstation, right? And so all of that is coordinated through the control plane. The client is then talking to the proxy via what? Is there, am I tunneling? Uh, is it a TLS session and all the management sessions underneath are tunneled through that or? Yeah. So if you look at it in Wireshark, you will see a single TLS armored session. Okay. So you'll see one TCP connection. And, you'll, you know, you'll look on one side of your screen and you'll notice that you have a ton of queries going and some Kubernetes commands running and you're running some Ansible uh, and all of that is going through. But on the Wireshark side, you'll just see a single TCP connection. Okay. So all of those individual sessions and TCP connections are being multiplexed inside of one sort of thick link over to the proxy. Now, you did say network of proxies, and, and, and my heart fluttered a little bit. What, what did you mean by that? Okay, so, um, so just like our product has to be simple to use for end users, it has to be simple to deploy, okay? And part of that is being able to um, really uh, accomplish really any network topology that you can think of with kind of as few moving parts as possible. So what that necessitates in our product is that our proxies form a mesh network, what do you mean by they form a mesh network? Is that they would form a mesh of all of the proxies that are in one data center or all of the proxies everywhere are in some kind of shared mesh? All of the proxies within your organization as a customer, right? And so what you would do is, and really this is simple, you just do it on a piece of paper. You sketch out your, the, you know, the geographic regions you're in, you sketch out the, you know, the virtual networks that you have, how, however you segregated and segmented those subnets. And then as long as you can draw a line, and it's, they're bidirectional lines because they're mesh, um, as long as you can draw a line from the workstation to the target resource, then you're good. And if you can't draw a line, then you put a proxy in there. Ah, okay. so... Let, just to give an example, see if I have this clear. If I have a VPC that has no peering connections and I want to connect to a resource in there, I have to put a proxy in there. Mm -hmm. And then I need a proxy that I can get to that can bounce to that proxy or I need to be able to reach that proxy directly. Yeah, Correct. You're saying you don't have to get to that proxy. You have to get to a proxy. You have to... I'm thinking of this as an infrastructure management overlay. As long as I can hit one of the boxes, I can then jump from it to wherever in the mesh and in the, in the management overlay. And yep. eventually I'm going to get 
sent out the other side to the resource I'm trying to manage. Yeah, exactly. So like, I think of like when we, when we had physical machines racked and there was a, you know, there was the management network and management Nick, right? Um, it's, it's, it is that virtually, right? For sure. Okay. Okay. So I think I have an idea of what the proxy architecture, and I think we'll have to dive deeper into this in a future episode because there's a lot just, just riding on that. Uh, but I'm curious, what what do these proxies look like? I, I would assume there's a virtual instance. Do you also sell a physical box that can be the proxy, or is it always deployed as some sort of virtual machine or, or something like that? It is 100% of the time only available in a 48U titanium case. Excellent. <laughs> Perfect. I really Perfect. want to roll that into that's an AWS data center and be like, you yeah. have to put this somewhere. I'm getting two for <laughs> that's the house. The, that's, the only, that's the only way we sell our software. <laughs> No, of course, it's the opposite of that. Uh, it's a it's a single. Uh, so our, t- our team is a, a team of gophers. So everything's written in Go. Uh, and so it means that we are able to compile for whatever CPU architecture and whatever operating system, we're able to compile a single binary with no other dependencies. And so that means that really any way you would run a single user space binary is how you run the strong end proxy. So uh, throw it in systemd, oh. throw it in a container. Uh, make make its own make it make a virtual machine dedicated to that. It doesn't really matter. Um, it's just a single software process. You're not shipping me a, a physical box then at all. Nope. Right, but if I want to run this on my Raspberry Pi, I, I very well could because oh, yeah. I, you already have a a binary compiled for the ARM processor and you know whatever architecture I'm running it on. Of course, yes. Again, it's 2022. <laughs> you say that, but you'd be shocked at how often that is not the case. <laughs> well, there's even a there's a pretty ARM heavy desktop operating system that uh, that is also out there these days. Uh, so yeah, ARM ARM everywhere is a, is an important property for sure. Okay, so I want to talk about the client portion of things a little bit more because let's say I'm working on a Kubernetes cluster and I'm going through StrongDM to do that. What does that look like at the command line when I'm running kubectl commands? How, how yep. am I addressing that that remote cluster and making sure it uses the proxy? So, uh, so our job is never done unless we have an answer to that question that feels idiomatic for that particular use case. Okay, so how you feel idiomatic for a Microsoft SQL Server user is different from how you feel idiomatic for a, a kubectl user. Okay, and I'm, I'm a cuddle, I say cuddle. All right, so when I'm on the command line and I type kubectl, the answer is that our client has interacted with the kube config and it has augmented it uh, to include the proxied versions of all the systems you need to access. Oh, <laughs> so it's transparent. It's absolutely transparent, yes. Wow. Hmm. And so if I were a, a SQL DBA, similar sort of situation, if I have connections to a bunch of different SQL servers, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so, so that sugar of that last mile is, it's an important part of the job. Um, it differs. We have different levels of sugaring for each protocol. You know, we've spent a lot of time sugaring SSH and kubectl and maybe less time on some other protocols, but, um, but yeah, being able to say this feels natural. That's a, that's a key, uh, a, a key drive that we have always in our design. Because effectively uh, on the, uh, as the operator using the client, I'm sending commands and I'm not talking to Kubernetes. I'm talking to the proxy. Mm-hmm. And then the sugaring happens uh, to, to massage that so that it looks good when yes. it actually hits the Kubernetes uh, c- control node. Yeah. Yep. Exactly right. What does that look like from a DNS perspective? 
uh, are you taking control of my my local DNS uh, the way that's <laughs> resolving to make sure that I'm hitting the proxy and not the the server that I want to talk to? <laughs> uh, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, and uh, and and actually for for today the answer the answer is no. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, we don't take over DNS yet. Um, uh, so so it actually ends up just being a. Um, a a port numbering that you essentially coordinate with your team. Um, so you ha you essentially resolve names to numbers on the loopback interface, but they stay consistent across your team. Okay, so I'm using my native tooling, um, mm -hmm. an SSH client, let's say that I, that, it, that I know and love. I hit that loopback address or that custom port that hits the client sitting on my box, which then takes it, shoots it through the tunnel to the nearest proxy and across the mesh if necessary. And then it's finally hits the, hits the destination. Interesting. You got it. Hmm. Okay. And I assume I have to fire up the client first, or maybe that's something that just launches when I log in every day. Yeah. It, 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 it depends on, uh, again, how much sugar we've got. So for example, um, if you, if you're using a web application, um, it's very easy to know what the URL is and all operating systems respond to basically open this URL with the right default browser behavior. Uh, so that's an example of a client that's very, the, you know, a web application is very easy to open. Um, uh, so you, you would click on it in the strong game client and it would just open. So if I'm the strong DM administrator, I'm actually configuring this thing and I assume I'm like provisioning policies to send down to the client. Am I the one that controls what the local host and the port number mapping is? Yes, yes, you do. Yep. And typically you're going to think through, you're going to think that through and you're going to sort of lay all that out and then maybe affect that um, through, you know, your Terraform uh, or, or essentially whatever other automation you have in place. So it typically ends up being a little bit of design and then it's, uh, it's manifest through some automation. Uh, I think you might've answered my next question. So if I'm that strong DM administrator trying to bring the system up for the first time, I got a bunch of users to bring on board. Wh what is that onboarding process like? Sure. It all depends on, you know, how happy you are with your upstream identity systems. If you're super happy and that system supports the skim provisioning protocol and you're happy with how your groups and roles are organized, essentially all of that is going to be synchronized down to the product. Okay. And then within the product, you then take those groups and you say, you know, the data science team can access any of these resources that are tagged with data science or something like that. I, I have not heard anyone say the skim protocol in, in a long time. Do you, can you expand a little bit on what that is for the listeners? Because they might not be familiar with that. Uh, sure. So, you know, there's a set of protocols related to authentication and authorization that are out there. And interestingly, like as an industry, I will say there's no one <laughs> that says we're done in terms of those standards. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but there's at least one that uh, does a pretty good job at least enumerating what the users are in your organization and providing a way to have a system of synchronizing what users should exist, are expected to exist, and what roles and what groups. And that's the skin protocol. So it is a way for identity providers to push down the, you know, the existence of Ethan and the fact that Ethan is a member of the data science team into any provider, really. It's not universally adopted, but it's a pretty good structured way to get a population of users um, essentially populated into a system. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I encountered it when I was working on Azure AD single sign-on mm -hmm. to, to get it integrated with some of the third-party applications they were trying to support. And if it had that skim support, then it was real easy. And if it didn't, it was harder. Not great. Yeah. yeah so we're the, we're the former. We're the one where it's real easy. <laughs>
Oh, well, Justin, let, let's paint an ugly scenario, though. I've got a hodgepodge of users scattered across different... I don't know. It could be as bad as spreadsheets, Justin. I mean, what are my options then to get onboarded? Um, it's so that is not a that's not a that's not uncommon. I think that also the reality is that there there are very few uh, uh, cases where everything is everything is clean <laughs> uh, at the beginning. So um, so I'll say in that case, all all the automation you would expect from the sort of spectrum is um, if you just have a CSV, well, you're going to use our command line tools, which are totally happy to ingest uh, CSV or JSON. Okay, so that's part of the part of part of the automation spectrum. Um, the next hop in the automation spectrum is you're going to pick your language of choice, and you're going to import to you know using our official SDKs. Uh, you're going to import into you know that that will essentially run those imports against our API. Um, and then the sort of final form is one of those really high level um, orchestrators of the SDKs, which um, the canonical example would be Terraform. So the native Terraform provider, you would enumerate all your users just in there, and you would Terraform apply and you'd be off the races there is a native terraform provider for strong dm that's what you just said yes okay yes also that okay (laughs) got my terraform (laughs) spidey sense tingling there that's uh (laughs) i think everybody knows that i'm a fan (laughs) because strong dm is super important to having access to my systems uh, what happens if a proxy crashes? Am I like just dead in the water to getting to those systems until it comes back up? This is a question that like, thankfully, it's one of the other benefits of being able to control the client. So because we control the desktop client, we actually control essentially how that mesh network is switched, mm. right? So you can have and achieve high availability in your circuits through to the target resources without, for example, an explicit load balancer. Because the load balancing is happening between the client and whatever proxy nodes it's connected to. So I can just deploy two of the the proxies in my VPC or or whatever it is. I don't have to put an ELB in front of them or anything. And Hmm. they'll handle the load balancing connectivity. Yes, correct. Yeah, and, and and I wouldn't say can. I would say must. You must deploy more than one. <laughs> uh, we're gonna we're gonna definitely encourage and, and nudge you to, to deploy uh, quite uh, quite a few so that you're happy with even even things like availability zone, right? Like you would you would want to be able to know that you were well distributed across those sort of partitions. The other thing I will say, or the one caveat I'll offer, is that there are protocols that can't tolerate a TCP connection reset. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, so for a lot of database protocols, for example, if your query is flowing through path A and path A needs to be rebooted or is lost, well, your next query will flow through path B, you know, a millisecond later, but that won't be the same query. You know, that won't be the same TCP connection. So our mesh network is awesome, resilient. It just doesn't, uh, it isn't able to fully port in real time with, you know, with no drop uh, that TCP connection. Right, right. I, I see what you're saying. Don't don't rely on it as a load balancer in the same way with some of the same features and stateful mirroring that you might get in certain very fancy high availability clusters and such. Yeah, in those very rare, very fancy ones. Of course, if you're doing uh, you know a stateless protocol like HTTP, you would never notice um, when a, when a node was restarted or, or 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 crashed for whatever reason. Justin, I can see people. SysOps people and SecOps people looking at the strong DM box and going, ooh, I want to own that. So how is the separation of duties typically, what, what do you typically see when folks with folks that have adopted strong DM? Sure. 
Um, so we, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna verbally describe the architecture diagram for a second here. Um, uh, so so this is I'm gonna tell a story. Hopefully, draws a picture. We talk in terms of the horizontal direction of flow and the vertical direction of flow. Um, so vertically, we're communicating with the with the with the plane, the control plane that is um, uh, that is recording events and broadcasting policies. Okay, um, so that's the part that uh, that our team is responsible for maintaining. Uh, the customer's team is responsible for everything in that horizontal direction. So it's the client itself on the workstation. It's the direction, you know, of flow into that proxy. And then it's the distribution of all of those proxies to map that network topology. Okay. There's also a part of that, which is all of those logs that are being generated that actually, mm -hmm. you know, have every pixel of the Windows remote desktop session and have every keystroke of the cuddle exec uh, into the cluster. So all of those things that are being emitted, all of that uh, evidence, all those logs, as you can imagine, there's sensitive stuff in there, right? Yeah. And so you, your team is responsible for figuring out how you're gonna route those sensitive captures into your SIM, into your log aggregator and into your you know long-term storage systems so that you can collect those logs and have them for future review, have them for forensics, et cetera. Is there something built into the strong DM system that will scrub some of the information out before it even gets to the point where I would emit it as a log? In our ecosystem, we have a sidecar container called the log export container. And actually, that's just a uh, essentially a custom rolled version of uh, in configuration of Fluent D. And then within Fluent D, there's a sanitization option mm. that we support customers in using. So if you can precisely identify something you never want to appear in the log, then then that's the path you would take. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, I never want my lunch order to be in clear text. I that's <laughs> yeah, that's my yeah, use no, it's case. Really, it's embarrassing. <laughs> no one needs to know about my horrible taco addiction. Addiction if they yep. didn't already know about that. <laughs> uh, you said you said taco, but I see there it's, you've got a bag of cotton candy. Uh, you've got empty bags of cotton candy all around <laughs> we you. Don't do video on this podcast. <laughs> so uh, the other concern I might have is when you put a proxy in front of things. And you got a lot of traffic flowing through that proxy, it could become a potential bottleneck for getting access to those resources. And you said it's like it's like one big link that you've got. Mm. And if it's all going through one thing, that's a that's a problem. So how how do you how are you dealing with uh, potential bandwidth issues? It's absolutely true that it is a bottleneck. And uh, we already talked about the availability side of it. So how do I have you know high availability access to those resources? So let's just talk for a second about uh, more on the performance side. So of course, all performance, you talk about it in throughput and in latency, okay? Mm -hmm. So the answer on latency, I'll address first, and then we'll talk about throughput. Okay. So regarding latency, the way you should think of any proxy is roughly add up the legs of the path at, at the speed of light, and then a little overhead okay mm -hmm. and that's true for us as well okay so if because we're a mesh if you're flowing you know from austin over to mumbai and then back to virginia that's a lot of speed of light okay so if your <laughs> yeah. route is suboptimal then it, there's nothing you know it's physics <laughs> there's nothing that, uh so keeping your keeping your route uh, and your path tight is an important part in terms of latency. Um, the other thing that I think is is uh, important to note is that this is a people first product, um, and so uh, a high frequency trading algorithm would definitely notice a fraction of a millisecond. Ned won't. Okay, so that's the other thing to consider as late regarding latency. In terms of throughput, that's another case where the implicit load balancing is just happening among the available deployed proxies. Okay, so because the load is spread out, if you get a hotspot, well, that load is just going to flow elsewhere. 
Okay. So the answer is theoretically, you could hit throughput limits. You have to push really, really hard. And then because the proxy has been designed to scale with CPU, uh, the answer, the remedy is always just add more cores. Okay. So you don't have to think about memory. You don't have to think about disk. Just add more cores. The answer is either add more cores or add another proxy that has some cores in it. You got it. Exactly right. Justin, I love it when founders who have their fingers uh, deeply in the code base and uh, product design come on the show to talk about this. This has been super cool. And we've left so many things on the table that we want to get into. Now, the good news is uh, StrongDM is going to be back later in the year with uh, with more shows to chat more. And so we can get into like, I really want to get into the infrastructure as code conversation and the API and the SDK all that kind of stuff that we can uh, we can work with on the strong dm side but but for now this has been a fantastic conversation introduction to strong dm if people are listening to this and they want to know more where would you recommend they go so uh so i'd encourage everybody to just um check out our website and sign up for a free trial so um so if you want to do it uh it's just uh of course strongdm.com packet pushers you can sign up for a free trial you can ask for a demo uh, all that stuff strongdm.com packet pushers thank you justin now justin are, are, are you a social guy personally like you on linkedin or twitter or any of those things that people can harass you and ask i mean come up to you and politely ask you questions uh, I know this may be unconventional, but uh, I will encourage people to email me if that's okay. If you wish to share your email address, yeah. by all means. Yeah, just Justin at StrongDM. So that's that's the first way to get me. And then uh, and then you can also find me at, at uh, the Twitters at slash Built by Justin. Lovely. Thank you very much, Justin McCarthy, CTO and co-founder of StrongDM for joining us today. And our thanks to StrongDM for sponsoring today's episode. Ned and I have families to feed up here in the cloud and our sponsors help us to do exactly that. Virtual high fives to you for tuning in and listening all the way to the end. If you talk to the folks at StrongDM, again, strongdm.com slash packet pushers, would you be sure to let them know that you heard about them on Day 2 Cloud, part of the Packet Pushers podcast network? We would appreciate that. And if you have suggestions for future shows, vendors you'd like to have come on and sponsor the show, etc. Ned and I would love to hear about that from you. So hit either of us up on Twitter. We are monitoring at day two cloud show. Or if you're not a Twitter person, go up to Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com and hit his contact form there and let us know. Now, if you like IT engineering shows like this and you'd like even more, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. Links to all of our podcasts, our newsletters, and our websites are listed there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs>